We're in a study called Word-Rooted Prayer and Worship, keeping your heart close to the flame. And, and we've been in a bit of a study for last Sunday night, this Sunday night, looking at faith in prayer, that it's not static. Our lives can grow in faith, expand, um, see results in our prayers. And I started last Sunday night looking at three things that I thought would feed and nourish not just your personal prayer life, but our corporate prayer life as a congregation. And here's the three things we covered last week, just by a quick review. Uh, faith in prayer is fed by these three things. Direct promises of God in scripture. Remember, I said Luther said how he rubbed God's ears with his promises. The writer of Hebrews, the people that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. Jesus talked about the kind of faith, if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, you know, and it seems almost too big a promise for us. Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them. Find promises from God's word. And I made the comment, it isn't enough just to say, oh yeah, I remember that promise. There's, there's a, a kind of exercising of our mind and heart that comes from spending time in the promises of God. So it's not just, can I say those words? It's playing them over in my mind so that there's a, a climate of confidence in a world that just creates, in terms of invisible things, a climate of doubt and skepticism. So trust in the promises of God. The second thing we looked at was God's passion to glorify his name. And we looked at James talking about Elijah and how he, how he prayed for that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years and then prayed that it would rain later on. And the reason he prayed that it wouldn't rain is he couldn't stand the wickedness of, of God's own people and how they had rebelled against God. And, and he couldn't live with the idea that God wouldn't judge, that God wouldn't do something. So it's this passion for his name. And then we looked at four or five texts that relate prayer specifically to the intercessor's passion for God to glorify his name for your own name's sake. Third thing we looked at was a heart that is tender, a conscience that's sensitive to the promptings, the voice of the Holy Spirit, both in conscience and in scripture. John says, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have the things we ask that you, you, you can't pray well when you're divided, where you, you want to follow God in most areas, but not in a certain area. That's what James calls a double-minded man. And he says, the double-minded man isn't just unstable in the area where he's double-minded. The double-minded man is unstable in all areas. It affects, particularly the prayer life. So you have to feel a certain consistency. None of us is sinless, but you have to have a certain consistency that I, I really, I'm not just coming to God like a slot machine, but I really, do, I really do want my life under his rule, under his lordship. It's, it's my aim. It's my overarching goal. 
So we looked at those three things. I want to look tonight at three more. Quite quickly, I want to look at three more. So this would be four, five, and six. Four, faith grows as we pray for the direct fulfillment of God's will as it is revealed in Scripture. I want to look at some verses from Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, and I notice I'm not asking, is this in your notes? I, I, I caught on. Daniel 9, 1 to 3. This is Daniel speaking. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. They're in captivity, and they're going to be there 70 years. That's the end of verse 2. Look, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And the striking thing about that text to me is, if I were Daniel, I would have said, well, this is great. I mean, God has predicted this, that the captivity will end in 70 years 70 years is coming to an end, so let's just start packing. God has made a commitment that the captivity will last 70 years. When Daniel reads the prophet Jeremiah, and he, that's the prophet you have, the Jeremiah you have in your Bible. As Daniel reads it, he realizes, oh, this is, this is a 70-year Babylonian captivity. And what it does is, makes him call out to God. It, it doesn't stop him from praying. It motivates him to prayer. And when you think about it, it makes pretty good sense. When we have this certainty that our hearts line up with the heart of God himself, you begin to feel God's heart. You know that you know that you are moving in the same direction. This isn't going to be like James, that we're just consuming it on our own desires, asking amiss. Here's what God has said. Here's what God is doing. And that's the direction I'm going to be praying. He wraps his heart around his understanding of God's word. God's word feeds Daniel's prayer, God's plans, God's intentions. When they're known, when we read about them, they should fuel our faith, sharpen the focus of our prayers. I wonder how different my prayer life would be if I spent more time carefully looking at the things I already know the Bible said are going to happen. For example, what would we do in our prayer groups tonight? How would we pray if we honestly believed, I mean really believed, that the Bible we carry to church says, it's right about back here in that New Testament, that it says, speaking of the church, the love, the love of many is going to grow cold in the church. 
So, so here you have something that God says is going to happen. In the last days, in churches like Cedarview, the love of many Christians is going to grow cold. If I really believe that, what would it do to prayer meetings in our church? Like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it awaken something in us that we don't think about all that often with all the things we pray about, my sore back, my sore neck, bless the missionaries. Oh, wait a minute. Our hearts are going to start growing cold. And you wouldn't be sitting, listen to me now, we'd be turned kneeling, crying in our chairs. Oh God, please, please don't let that be me. Please keep my heart warm. Please keep my heart awake. What, how, how, how would we pray if we really believe that this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all nations and then the end will come? How would that affect the way we pray? How would we pray if we really believe, oh, 1 Thessalonians 2, Antichrist is going to come and he's going to deceive the very elect? How would that make us pray? How would we pray if we really believe, oh, the Bible actually says that we're going to be lovers of pleasure more than we are lovers of God. Lord, has that happened already? See, that, that's what Daniel does. He sees there's where the text is going. There's where the warning is. There's where the promise is. There's where the caution is. There's a simple statement of fact. And he takes all those things and, and it doesn't make him lazy in prayer. It makes him call out to God because he knows this is where God's heart is. God has told us these things in advance. Why? They're designed, I believe, to be at the top of our prayer lists. They're the things we're to be calling out to God for. They should lead us Two things, they should help me to have a fresh awareness of my own vulnerability to these things, my heart growing cold, becoming lover of pleasure rather than lover of God. I should be thinking about that. Because if God says this is, this is what's going to be happening, I take that to mean it can happen to me. That should affect the way I call on God. It should also affect the way I intercede. I have good friends. You have good friends in this church. When I pray for them, when I name them every night, don't, don't, let, don't let his heart grow cold, Jesus. They mean a lot to us. Don't let their hearts grow cold. Not my kids. Not my relatives. Not our worship team. Lord, keep them spiritually hot. Our tendency has been to, you know, the, the, the whole thing with the end times, tendency has been to write books and make movies about these things rather than fuel our prayer meetings with them. Okay, that's four. Took a little bit of time there. Five. Here's another help. Praying with a prepared mind. 
Trust isn't an emotion that's easily commanded just with willpower. To, to pray with faith and trust and confidence in God, you, you have to know God. And what I want to say most under this point is there's a knowledge of God that is, it's not just an intellectual knowledge of God. There's a knowledge of God that is a relational knowledge of God. And that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort. The kind of effort it takes to know God is different from the kind of effort it takes to build your body in a gym or a health club. For this reason, the effort to tighten your abs simply requires physical effort. You can love it, you can hate it, as long as you do it. You just, you just do 300 sit-ups twice a day, you'll tighten up your abs. Knowing God doesn't require just that kind of effort. Knowing God requires a moral effort. It's an affectional effort. Particularly, drawing near to God requires knowing God, morally knowing God, requires specific times of separation from worldly concerns. And that takes an awful lot of work. This is how purity is related to knowing in the prayer life. This, I was looking at James and I don't have this even in my notes, so just give me a second. James chapter um, 4. Okay, here. James 4, 6 to 8. Just jump in there. But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What does that involve? Next sentence. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. So the, the idea here is how, how do you get close to God? In a little bit, the worship team will come out. We do this every Sunday night, and we believe in it. And we're all going to stand here and we'll sing. Tom will have us stand and we're going to sing songs of worship and praise. And if you're raised in Pentecostal backgrounds and you know the teaching of the scripture on some of these things, people will sing with closed eyes. They'll sing with raised hands. Now, here's my question to you. There's no question that's drawing near to God. I don't question that for a minute. My, my question is different. My question is, is that all there is to knowing God? No, it's not. It's not. You, there's drawing near to God, and there's, a, and there's a drawing near to God that comes from resisting the devil and the influences. Dr drawing near to God requires making certain moral decisions about my entertainment levels, the friendships that I make, the way I conduct my business. And... And the drawing near to God will stop at the level where my resisting of the world and the devil stops. 
When that resistance stops, the drawing near to God stops. That's why James puts those two things together. There's a, there's a kind of knowing God, a moral knowing of God, that does require a specific kind of purifying the heart, humbling the heart. I was reading uh, Richard Baxter in his Christian directory, written in 1664. It was written for new converts. It has 2,800 pages of small print with no pictures. Yes, new Christians would all read it. Here's what he, here's what he says about this, this kind of knowing. Clog not the body with overmuch or overtiring labors. Rush not suddenly upon prayer out of a crowd of other busyness or before your last worldly cares or discourses be washed clean out of your minds. Those things have to be cleaned out of your minds before you're going to draw. And he doesn't just mean stop thinking about them. He means the affection of your heart has to be turned away from certain things if it's going to be turned toward God. Those words from Richard Baxter, they're good, but they should remind us of words that Jesus gave. Matthew 13, 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Or here, Jesus relates this same subject, this moral knowing, turning from the world, turning to God, drawing near with a moral knowing, not an intellectual knowing. And he relates it to the prayer life in Matthew 6, 6. When you pray, go into your room. I think the old King James has closet. Go into your room, shut the door. Pray to your father who is in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. So this room, it's, it's only a symbol of shutting out, distancing oneself from things that normally require our attention, our thoughts, and our affections. Shut those things out if you want to draw near to God. You, you can't pray effectively trusting in a lot of things. Be still, Psalm 46.10, and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We've heard those beautiful words. We sing them sometimes so frequently that we don't even ask the obvious question. Why does knowing God be still and know that I am God? Why does knowing God automatically result in him being exalted in the earth? And there's really only one answer to that question. It has everything to do with our theme of prayer. As people really come to know God, they will know what God wants. They will trust in his power to accomplish his purposes. They will pray and intercede in such a way that they will see him exalted in a host of circumstances. Six. Pray with a humbled heart. Pray with a humbled heart. I was looking at Psalm 19, 12, and 13, 
I have two texts, then I'll start to wrap up. Psalm 19, 12 and 13. Now I'm talking about praying with a humbled heart. Psalm 19, 12. Who can discern his errors? So when the text starts with that kind of a question, the implication is I, I, don't, I don't know myself as well as I should in terms of how weak I can be under the right circumstances. Okay? Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So, self-awareness should breed humility in my heart. Self-awareness when I pray. If, if, if I have a hard time humbling myself, it's because I, I really don't know the power of original sin in my own heart. Original sin, by the way, original sin is not the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. That's not what the Bible means when, when that's not what we mean when we talk about original sin. Original sin is not the sin of Eve and Adam. Original sin is the effect of their sin on my heart. That's what we mean when we talk about original sin. That, that we have something in our heart that we're born, conceived in iniquity, right? That's what the Bible says. That doesn't mean we commit all the sins, but it means that there is something, there's something in me, I'm talking about praying in humility, that's the last point. There's something in me that is very easily inclined, that is far weaker than I imagine. And so there's, I mean, that's what, that's what David is doing in, in, in these verses. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Who's he talking to? He's talking to God. This is his prayer. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. There's stuff in me that I don't want tripping me up. He prays about it. I want to do a series of, no, not a series. I want to do a message on presumptuous sins. I don't think the church thinks nearly enough about that issue of presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sin is when I know before I ever commit it, this is wrong, God doesn't want me to do it, the church forbids it, and I'm going to do it because, because God's merciful and I'm going to get forgiveness later on. Who knows? Three months down the road, I can sing in the choir again. It's going to be fine. That's presumptuous sin. David says, oh God, <laughs> whatever happens, please don't let me go there. Don't let me go there, God, not ever. But do you see how it's fueling his prayer? That's the point I'm trying to make tonight. He's pouring out his heart about this. Or look at Psalm 139, 23, 24. Search me, O oh God. See, that you can see why Jesus says you got to get into a room alone if you're praying this kind of a prayer. Search me, O God. Know my heart. I don't, but please, you do. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous, wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
And so you come to church and somebody says something about you that isn't true. Or you're mistreated in some way. And you get mad. And then you get home Monday, you lose your job. And while you're going to see if you can get unemployment, you run into the back of another car and you just want to explode in rage and you say, God, what in the world are you doing? And God's going to say to you, didn't you pray this morning to search your heart? I'm just showing you what's in there. You see, all, you, see all the, you see all the anger? You see all the bitterness? You see all those feelings of revenge? You didn't even know they were there, Don, but they are. Don't ever pray for God to search your heart unless you really want him to show you what you're like on the inside. <laughs> pray for a humbled heart. Pray for a humbled heart. That takes time, a lot of time. Pray for a humbled heart. That's six. I want to word these the same way. Pray with a prepared mind. That's five. Pray for what God has already revealed in Scripture so you know you're praying in tune with what he has said. I don't know about you, but I just see so many things that I don't pray enough about when I think about all those subjects. And it's a great way to kind of Grow your faith and clean your heart and draw near to God all at the same time. Let's pray. You can study this in 25 minutes. It takes a lifetime to unpack. I pray, Lord, that you will Revive our hearts around these truths. Anchor our prayers deeply to your word with humility and honesty and repentance and trust in your good promise. In your name I pray and thank you. Amen.